If you have your Bibles, open them, please, to James chapter 2. We're looking at verse 1 to 13. And again, if a sermon outline is helpful, there is one in your worship folders. If we look at the life of Jesus, one of the things that we know is that Jesus never uh, didn't say what he thought. He never said anything that he didn't mean. And one of the things we know is that Jesus came down hard on those who thought they were better than anyone else. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their righteousness and scorned everyone else. Scorned, that's quite a word, isn't it? Scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray, and one was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, and adulterers. I certainly not am like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home satisfied, justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be be exalted. I love this. Jesus cares so much about you and I that he plainly instructs us on the specific aspects of life. He tells us what we're to do, and he tells us what we're not to do, what we're to stay away from, what we're to absolutely avoid. And here in in this passage, the message is clear. We are to refuse to compare ourselves to anyone else and always choose humility over pride. Think of that. Very simple point. We are to refuse to compare ourselves with anyone else and always choose humility over pride. Now, there's another passage that talks about what we're going to be focusing on this morning as far as the tendency we have to be critical. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, Let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, it's important here that Jesus doesn't say, be careful who we judge. He, does, he says, do not judge. And then he adds, if we do judge, if I judge, if you judge, then we are going to receive the same thing we gave. If we have a harsh judgmental spirit, that is harsh judgmental spirit is what we're going to get back. And I love how Jesus concludes this story. He says that instead of judging others, deal with the imperfections of your own life. Deal with the sin of your own life. See, there's something that happens within us, friends, when we become aware of our own sin, when we become aware of those habitual habits, those things that continue to to knock us off our feet, those things that can even happen in a moment of time when we are rude and sensitive, unkind, and we hurt someone. Jesus' lesson is clear. In each of our lives, we have sin and character issues that we need to resolve before we give the time to pay attention to someone else's sin. In fact, when we are aware, when I am aware of my own sin, when I am aware of my tendency to blow up, when I am in situations where I make mistakes and I have the realization as much as I can have of my own sinfulness, you know what that does? That creates in me a compassion for others, not a judgmental spirit. 
So one of the things that Jesus said is to be aware of our own frailty, be aware of our own tendency to, be, to sin, be aware of our own faults, because we are going to see others as truly co-sinners with us, striving to be who God wants us to be. It is so easy, isn't it, for us to draw comparisons and make judgments without even knowing what's happening. Valerie Cox in her book, Chicken Soup for the Soul, tells of a woman who was waiting in an airport one night, and her flight was still a few hours off. She didn't have anything to do, so she went into a bookstore to find a book. She got a book, and when she came out of the store, she smelled those places that bake cookies and sell them a few at a time. And she went and got a bag of those cookies and sat down to read. Well, as she was sitting there, she noticed that the man sitting beside her reached into the cookie bag and grabbed one. And she tried to ignore what was happening, but she just, uh, she was kind of interesting that this man would have that much of a, uh, of, of a boldness, I guess, to reach in and take a cookie. And so she took a cookie herself and watched the clock as her time was getting closer for the, her flight to have to come. And, and she wondered if the guy would keep doing it. She would take a cookie, he would take a cookie. She would take a cookie, he would take a cookie. And finally, there was only one left, and she wondered, what will he do? With a smile on his face, he reached down, took the last cookie, broke it in half, and gave half to her and half to himself. Well, she in her mind could not imagine a time when she had been so offended and taken advantage of. And finally, her flight came, the light went on, and she went, and she didn't even look back at this man who was so rude. She boarded the plane, she sank in her seat, she sought her book, and when she reached into her bag, she realized that her cookie bag was still in her purse. And she said to herself, if these are mine, the others were his. And he tried to share. And too, too late she realized that she had been the rude one, not the man who had willingly, with a smile on his face, shared his cookies. See, friends, I think that tells a story of how easy it is for us to come to judgment and how much we sometimes don't know about other people. In James chapter 2, the passage we're looking at this morning, James emphasizes the dangers and the consequences of judging, of treating some people with honor and other people with disrespect. Listen as I read this passage of Scripture. Now, before I get to this, let me make this statement. Many scholars believe that this is not a story, just a story that James told. It is a situation that he observed. That in the church in Jerusalem, he saw this exact story taking place, and because of how wrong it was, he chose to include it in his letter. James chapter 2, verse 1. The half-brother of Jesus says, My brother, show no partiality, partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assemble, and a poor, and a poor shab man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, Here, you sit in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, and again, he's speaking to people who are followers of Jesus. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? 
If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, the law of grace. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. On your outline, six points of what we need to know to overcome favoritism. Number one, favoritism is always wrong. In verse one, as well as in other places in this passage, James says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And what he is doing here is drawing a comparison. He says, show no partiality, and the reason is because you are a child of God. Show no partiality because you have received grace. Give that to other people. The New Century Version is even more plain when it says, Dear brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, never think some people are more important than others. Now that will take some transformation in our life, don't we? Because we live in a culture that fosters that mindset. There are the haves, there are the have-nots, and everybody who in between. And we have developed a culture based on the priority of importance and value. And James says that we as God's people are to remove that, that concept, that mentality from our thinking. Proverbs 24, 23 says, it is wrong to show favoritism when passing judgment. Second Chronicles 19, 7 says, fear the Lord and judge with integrity for the Lord our God doesn't, listen to this, he does not tolerate perverted justice, partiality, or the taking of bribes. The Bible is very clear. In Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy saying, I solemnly command you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus and with the highest angels to obey these instructions without taking sides, or showing favoritism to anyone. Simply put, we are to refrain from any trace of favoritism in our life. We are to see other people as God sees them, as sinners in need of a Savior, as people in needing of, in, in, with the need of love in their lives. Simply put, we are to say, God, help me to remove anything that allows me to see anyone other than you see me. May that be the way I see them. The second point what does favoritism do? Favoritism does three things. In verses four to two to four, it says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, into your church, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here at a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? The first thing that happens when we show favoritism is that we, favoritism separates. We're saying one person, you sit over there, one person, you sit over here, and if not there, just sit on the floor. And, the, and again, we are, Christ tells us again and again that we are one body. In fact, in, in John 17, he talks about the fact that if there's one thing that is to be distinct of us is our unity, our togetherness. And whenever, we, whenever separation starts, there's a bigger problem that begins, and that's the next thing that happens with favoritism. Favoritism isolates. Now, sometimes this is what happens, friends. We believe that we're doing those who we consider to have made it in life, quote-unquote, in any way, when we honor them, we consider that by separating them and giving them a place of honor that we're doing them a favor, that we're doing them a service. But in reality, we are isolating them. We are creating a mindset that subconsciously says, this person is better than I am, and so I'm going to have trouble relating.
relating to them in the same way when we isolate the poor man by saying, you sit over there, we're making a value statement saying, you know, you have not quite achieved what I've achieved, and so consequently we separate them not to be associated. And the Bible says that that kind of isolation is wrong, and it is wrong because God created us to need each other. He created us to live in a family and environment where the most natural thing in the world should be the commonality of relationship. That we can go to another person and understand that we can expect their care, we can expect their love because they are in the same place we are. That we have needs, that we have love, and that whenever we isolate, we are telling that person, I hope you can handle life on your own. You know, in the last weeks, we have seen the suicide of a couple of notary people who had made it in the world. And you wonder to what degree isolation and ability to talk to someone spurred that on. I read an article this week in Sports Illustrated about a quarterback from Washington State University that went into a big football game and won the game. He has a picture of him on the team, of, on the shoulders of a teammate. And a few days later, he said nothing to anybody. He went in the closet and he shot himself and his family was saying, what happened? Isolation. And his mom in that article said, only if he would have talked to us about it, we could have got through it together. And the pain of his family was obvious in that article. See, isolation, if not dealt with, can lead to desperation, desperation to despondency, and despondency to potentially depression. And what happens with depression is we get an unrealistic picture of life, and we respond based on how we perceive life in that depressed state, rather than how we would perceive life if we were together with other people. How many of you have felt the freedom that comes, the lessening of the burden that comes when you simply have somebody to talk to about something difficult in your life? The third thing that favoritism does is it captivates. And here we're not talking about the person whose favoritism is shown to. We're talking about the person who is doing the favoritism. Verse 4 says, have you, then, have you not then made, the distinct, made distinctions among yourself? And then he makes this statement, and become judges with evil thoughts. See, it's possible for you and I to take on ungodly ways of thinking and allow them to be habits, mental habits that we go to again and again. And if we're not careful, we can get caught up in the culture's idea that it's okay to rank people, to show favoritism to some and dishonor to others. And, and James is saying that when we allow this to become a mindset, then it will captivate us. And friends, don't think for a moment that the devil does not want us to be, does not want to captivate us with attitudes and thoughts that will further his purposes and diminish God's purposes. Second Timothy 2.26 says, for they have been held captive by Satan to do whatever he wants. See, un, untransformed habits of thought will lead us away from what God wants and accomplish the purposes of the enemy. That is why in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we're told to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against, raised against what? Raised against the knowledge of God. What's the knowledge of God? This is the knowledge of God. So anytime we have a, are forming opinions in our life, we need to make sure that these opinions are based on God's Word getting into our thoughts and forming opinions that are honorable to Him. And it says at the last of this, destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are not to allow every thought to run rampant in our minds. We are to take them captive and make sure that they are obedient to what God tells us to do. The third fact about favoritism, favoritism blinds me to reality. And you know what, in this next passage, verses 5 to 7, I think what 
James is doing is saying, you know, not only is what you guys, what you guys doing wrong, it's not even smart. And he begins to talk about the difference between the rich and the poor. And he says, here you are honoring the rich and dishonoring the poor. And he says, isn't though, he said, you're dishonoring the poor in spite of the fact that the poor are rich in faith. They might have a, a poor economic status, but they have a rich spiritual status. And see, because they are seen to be poor financially, they're judged by the world to be inferior. And James is not saying that. He goes on to describe them to be rich in faith. So even though they don't have much in this world, they have a rich inheritance waiting for them. See, friends, sometimes the Bible, when it talks about the wealthy, it says that the, that the wealthy can, getting into heaven is as easy as a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, the eye of a needle was a small entrance coming into Jerusalem. They could get through it, but it was tough. And he was saying that there is a, a sense of dependency that the poor have that makes them more willing to accept the gospel, and not only God, the gospel, but the promises of God. And when we have too many things, when we have too much economic sufficiency, it can be hard for us to see our need, and we can look at ourselves in how, how we can solve our problems rather than to come to the promises of God and say, Lord, as I am obedient to you, I trust your word. See, self-sufficiency can lead to sinfulness if we hold too much to what we have onto what we have and trust in that more than God's provision for our lives. He then says that you're dishonoring the poor regardless of the fact that they have responded to God's grace. In other words, he's saying, understand that the poor, not just the poor, they're your brothers and sisters. If this poor person has accepted Christ, they are a part of the family of God. And so you are not dishonoring someone that you don't know. You're dishonoring a family member. They're heirs of the kingdom, people that we are going to be with for eternity. And then he turns the tide and says, now let's just take a few minutes and talk about who these rich people are that you're lifting up, that you're exalting to the best place in the church. He says, the first thing about the rich is that they are pressing. To oppress means to burden, to weigh you down until you are weary. He says, even though you're giving them honor, they don't think twice about making your life difficult if it comes to their advantage. And he then says, the next thing is, is you honor these people in spite of the fact that they use the legal system to get what they desire. The unscrupulous rich use their money and influence to drag you into court and to get what they want from you simply because they can. And then he tops it off by saying you honor them in spite of the fact that they profanely are using the name of God. They use God's name irreverently as an adjective of disgust, using God's name as if he is of no consequence, and yet we honor them as if it's okay and acceptable. How many times have we been in situations where God's name has been used in a derogatory way? How many times has that just become acceptable within our culture? You know, I've been amazed over the last few weeks at some of the names that have been addressed to our president and some of the people, his family, people who walk with him, and I say, what does our world come to when, when deflammatory, I mean hugely gross, inappropriate language is used publicly to talk about another person. And we as God's people, friends, need to be agents of light, not only staying far away from using God's name, anything other than an honorable name declaring our love and devotion, but also making sure that we do not participate in or in any way, in any way contribute to thinking that using God's name or using disgusting language is in any way okay. It might mean 
moving away from the conversation. There might be other times when God leads you to say something, but this is the point. Why do we do this? It's because he, we, because when God's name is used in any other way than, than honorable, when language is used in any way that's demeaning of another person, we have not only the opportunity, we have the right to defend the God who loves us, to stand up for him, and also say that there is a line in the sand where decency and godliness needs to be proclaimed and seen as something that is right. James is saying get a grip on reality and change the way you're living. The fourth thing that James says about showing favoritism is that unconditional love eradicates favoritism. He now goes and says, if you want a solution for showing favoritism, this is what it is. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, what does it mean the royal law? King Jesus gave us, this. he said, our king, he gave us this royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians 13 says, so now faith, hope, and love, these three abide. But the greatest of these is what? is love. It's when we truly choose to love someone that we begin to put ourselves in a position where it is impossible to judge them. If you love someone, it's impossible to truly judge them because what does love do? Love looks at the condition of the person and says, how can I meet that need? And it's very easy for us to see people who are doing wrong and to judge them. And what does it say here in this passage? What does it say in Matthew? Do not judge for the same way that you judge, you're going to get back. What God says is when you see even a person that's sinning, when you see all these people who are saying these horrible things, you know, we want to say, how can that person do that? This and this should happen. And in the reality, if we see them as Christ sees them, the first thing we should be doing is praying, God, would you open their eyes? Would you bring a revelation of yourself to them that they might be able to see their need in their life to change? See, love always sees the need that another person has and addresses that need. We need to be, have the same intensity towards loving others that Teddy Roosevelt had in the way that he lived life. I read this week that, that President Roosevelt rode a moose. I mean, can you ever imagine riding a moose? He rode a moose. He took down an armed cowboy during a barroom brawl. He crossed the frozen river to chase boat thieves. He worked on a ranch in the Dakotas, flew a Wright Brothers airplane, scaled the Matterhorn in the Swip Alps, went on month-long African safaris, navigated uncharted parts of the Amazon River. He led the charge up Kettle Hill during the Battle of San Juan. He set up a boxing ring in the White House so he could spar with anyone who dared to get in the ring with him and was known to go skinny-dipping in the Potomac River when president. He lived life to the full. And here is the, here is the point. We should have the same intensity in loving other people as Teddy Roosevelt did in living life. We should let nothing stop us from loving people no matter what. We shouldn't let our emotions stop us, our circumstances stop us, our past hold us back, or what we want for our future stand in the way of giving love to everyone who crosses our path. So that is a radical love. A radical love that goes beyond the point of what's comfortable and goes beyond social norms to be the one who sets the stage for what our world needs to hear. Did Jesus show a radical love? Did he have a radical example? Did he enter, enter into society when he came and turn it upside down so that he upset the whole religious system? Absolutely. So how can we think if in, that anything else than a radical love, a denying of ourself, doing as it says in Philippians, taking on the form of a servant and loving so that it is obvious. And friends, you know what that means? That means we have to make decisions against ourselves. 
I want to do this, but the right thing to do is something else. So I make a decision against myself so that your love, Father, will be established. And not only will God's love be established, but there will be a transformation within us. When we make decisions against ourselves to love, it changes the very context of who we're becoming. When we say, I want to do this, but I'm going to do that, God does a transformational work. See, He is honored when you choose to love. He is honored when I choose to love. When the employee at work that drives us nuts needs help, and we're thinking, man, that'll be the day, and we say, I need to make a decision against myself, what are we doing? We're making a decision to do what is right, and God changes us, he cha- and He changes that person. Make a decision against yourself to love. Number five, one sin breaks the whole law. It seems that the people James was writing to was, were thinking, you know, it's not a sin to show favoritism. It's a normal part of the culture. It's kind of like if we studied our culture from 30 years ago till now and saw the changes, what used to not be acceptable to what is acceptable now. In that culture, they said, too, favoritism's not a big deal. And what is James saying? He is saying, if you show partiality, you are committing in sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors, forever who ke- for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of all of it. And, he, and here he is saying, don't ever think favoritism isn't important. He says, favoritism, showing favoritism is a sin equal to adultery or murder. In fact, one of the scholars said that all of the law was woven together into a seamless garment, and if you broke one law, you broke them all. James is simply saying this is how serious it is to show favoritism. Don't take it lightly. Don't think you get a pass. Don't think if you do show favoritism, but do five other other good things that you balance that out. It's always sin. And number six, what I give is what I get. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others, but if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. A simple but life-changing truth. What do you want from life? What do you want from life? What do I want from life? If I want mercy, I give mercy. If I judge people without compassion or consideration, be aware that is what I'm going to receive back. And friends, we really need to think that through because God is saying here, I'm giving you a choice of what to receive. And because it's also so easy to feel justified in judging or being critical of other people. We see somebody else doing a sin that we would never commit and we judge them unaware of the sins that we commit as previously said or equal to it. See, what would happen if we can get our heads around the idea that my sin of gluttony or my sin of whatever else might be is equal to the sin that anybody else might be doing? And you know why? Because all sin separates us from God. And the reason God hates sin is because it separates from him, us from Him and from His grace and from His promises. So the sin of favoritism is equal to the sin of murder. The sin of lying is equal to the sin of adultery. All sins are equal in that they separate us from God and that breaks the heart of God, the God who wants to have a relationship with us. How do we live a life of impartial love. What is the power of impartial love? Three things. I commit. I will decide to love all the same. I will love each person as Christ has loved me. I will, ref- I will refuse to choose favorites. I will decide to love everyone as I want to be loved. I will offer kindness, compassion, mercy, and understanding. Number two, I will value all the same. I will refuse to value people based on what they have, what they've done, or how they look, or based on what others say about them. Isn't it easy how one person's opinion of another person that's negative can color the way we look at someone? 
And we have to say, hold on here, God. We have to remove that from our mind. I will follow the truth of Romans 5, 8 and love others as Christ loved me. How did Christ love me? The Bible says that God showed his great love for me by sending Christ to die while I was yet a sinner. And the third thing, I will remain aware of my own sin. Friends, there's nothing that can bring me back to reality regarding judging another person when I realize my own sinfulness. When I see the log in my own eye, the sinful desires that reside in my heart, the unkind words that come out of my mouth, and the unredeemed attitudes that are left in my heart and mind. And I see my life and I say, what right do I have at all to judge anyone? Just because we happen to have a culture that says some sins are worse than others, realize that God does not share that philosophy. He does not share that idea. We get back and say, what is the answer? I will choose love. I will love my neighbor as myself. What is the power of impartial love? What difference does it make to love? Ernest Gordon wrote a book called Through the Valley of Kwai, and it's a story about what it was like to be in a World War II Japanese prison camp. And the story about a man who was in this camp and literally gave more than anyone could expect. The man's name was Angus McGivory. Angus was a Scottish prisoner in one of the camps filled with not only Scottish prisoners, but with American, Australians, as well as Brits. And these are the prisoners who had helped build the infamous bridge over the river Kwai. Well, the camp had degraded into an ugly situation. The prisoners had a dog-eat-dog mentality. They would literally steal from each other and cheat each other. Men, the prisoners, would sleep on their packs and yet have them stolen from under their heads at night. Survival was everything. The law of the jungle prevailed until news of Angus McGivory's death spread throughout the camp. See, no one expected Angus to die. In fact, he was the one they expected to live the longest because of the tenacity and the strength and physical nature of this man. Well, rumor spread. What really happened? Why did Angus die? No one can believe that he had succumbed. He was strong. He was one they expected, as I mentioned, to live. But what really shocked the men even more was not the fact that he died, but the reason he died. And finally, the whole story came out. The Argyles, the Scottish soldiers, took their buddy system very seriously. Their buddy, the man they was pa were paired with, was called their mucker. And these Argyles, these Scottish soldiers, believed that it was literally up to each of them to make sure that the man they were paired with survived. Angus's friend, the man he was paired with, his mucker, was dying. And everyone had given up on him. Everyone, of course, except Angus. He had made up his mind that his friend, the man he was responsible to, would not die. Someone had stolen his friend's blanket, the man who was desperately sick. Angus gave him his own, telling this man that he had just come across another one. Likewise, at mealtime, Angus would get his rations and take them to his friend and stand over his friend and force him to eat them, again stating that he was able to get some extra food. Angus was going to do anything and everything to see that his buddy got whatever he needed to recover. But as Angus's mucker began to get better, Angus collapsed, slumped over, and died. And the doctors discovered that he had died of starvation complicated by exhaustion. He had been giving up his own food, his own shelter. He had given everything he had to the point of giving up his life. The ramifications of this act of love 
And his unselfishness had a transforming effect on this prison compound. John 15, 12 says, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And this truth began to impact this prison camp. As word circulated of the reason for Angus's death, the atmosphere in the, cha- in the camp began to change. Suddenly men began to focus on their mates, their friends, and, and, and they thought about how they could help others rather than just think about themselves. They began to pool their talents. One was a violin maker, another was an orchestra leader, another a cabinet maker, another a professor. Soon the camp had an orchestra full of homemade instruments and a church called the Church Without Walls that was so powerful, so compelling that even the Japanese guards attended. The men began a university, a hospital, a library system. The place was transformed and love was revived. All because one man named Angus gave all he had for his friend. For many of these men, turnaround, this turnaround meant survival. And what happens is an awesome illustration of what takes place when love reigns.